Coming up this evening on NTD Business. Elon Musk putting his Twitter deal on hold, or so he says. Is the takeover at risk? Democrats have a plan to cap oil and gas prices, but would it work? Thousands of college students will be compensated after suing the university over remote learning. That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us. Paul Graney here, live from New York City. Deutsche Bank says together we could pay almost $160 billion more than we paid last year for gas, and prices are only going up. The average gas price is now $4.43 according to AAA. That's about $1.40 higher than it was last year, and a brand new record. Not the kind of record you want. Deutsche Bank says that if prices hold, people will have $160 billion less to spend on things that aren't energy. That's bad news for the economy. And even though people are driving less, they're still spending more on gas. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi apparently has a plan to combat rising prices, allow the government to cap the price of gas. The cap will apply at the wholesale level and the retail level. The bill, which will be introduced in the House on Monday, is called the Consumer Fuel Price Gouging Prevention Act. Catchy. Democrats blame oil and gas companies for jacking up prices unfairly. They also blame Putin's price hike, although the price of gas was rising well before the war began. Lance Roberts is the chief investment strategist at RIA Advisors, where he manages over a billion dollars in assets. Asked him about the price cap plan. Well, I think it's always interesting. You know, government is trying to figure out some way to deal with the inflation that they caused to begin with. Uh, again, you know, the, the reason that we have inflation is that free money isn't free. And so we spent 2020, 2021 giving people free money, right? Checks to households and extended unemployment benefits and increased child tax credits. And look, that all sounded great. And, and sure, people needed it at the time. I won't argue that point. But there is a payback for free money. And when you increase demand by giving people free money and you've shut down supply because of the pandemic, you have inflation, which is where we are now. So, you know, now trying to fix that problem by using things like price controls as a good example doesn't really create a better outcome for individuals because, A, it reduces the, the producer's demand, right? I mean, so, you know, the problem we have right now is that producers aren't producing enough oil and gas. So now you're going to cap them on price. That's even going to reduce that potential for them to produce even more. So that's going to make the price you know, the, the price hikes in oil and gas last longer than they should. And what the administration forgets is, is that as prices of oil and gas go up, so do the costs that producers are having to pay, labor costs, drilling costs, materials costs, all those costs are going up as well. So while the, while the, the administration goes, oh, we need to, you know, put a cap on prices so we can, you know, they're, they're getting record profits, that may be the case, but it's not as big of a profit margin as you think. In fact, ExxonMobil is currently getting a smaller profit margin than they were three years ago because of where we are on, on, on the input cost going in to producing oil and gas. We did have price controls the last time we had historic inflation in the 80s. How did it go? Not well. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and again, you know, the, the outcome of price controls is always pretty inevitable. First of all, you, like I said, you're going to reduce the the desire to produce goods or services by capping their prices. 
but then also it doesn't stabilize the inflation problem because now I've got less supply, which means that prices are going to go up even more. So price controls really don't work at controlling inflation. It's a sound good thing. It's like, oh, we're going to cap that price, but it really doesn't solve your inflation problem because inflation is always a function of supply and demand. So if you reduce one, either supply or demand, you're either going to get inflation or deflation. Are you saying potentially these producers could just export the gas instead of selling it domestically? Well, yeah, of course. And, and this is, you know, kind of always the byproduct is that in a world today where we are globally connected, producers are always going to sell to the highest, highest provider. So if we're going to cap prices here in the U.S., but I can get a higher price overseas, yeah, sure, absolutely. As a as a CEO of an oil company, I'm responsible to my shareholders to generate profits. That I have a responsibility, a fiduciary responsibility to my shareholders. So I'm going to sell to the to the person that's paying the highest prices for oil and gas. And so, yeah, you put price controls here. I'm just going to export more overseas. What if we just introduce an export control? <laughs> well, see, we can go down that rabbit hole, right? We can just put one control after another on it. Um, and again, look, at the end of the day, price controls have never worked out well. Uh, you're either going to reduce the, the demand by increasing prices or you're going to reduce supply, also increasing supply, uh, increasing prices. So one of these two things you're going to work out to where you're not going to solve your inflationary problem. What is the solution here then? The, the, look, the, the best solution to cure high prices is high prices. And I know that sounds a little ridiculous, but what happens with high prices is that you do create artificial demand destruction. So as consumers simply can't drive as much or they can't pay as much for gas, they reduce their consumption, which ultimately reduces the demand as the demand falls. And yes, we're going to have a recession out of this. But as that demand decreases, prices begin, begin to come down because producers have to producers and suppliers want to sell their products. So they go, well, if nobody's buying it at, at $5 a gallon, maybe they'll buy it at $4 a gallon. So prices naturally come down through the recessionary activity. But, but this is the key point. The thing that we haven't been doing really since 2008 is letting recessions happen. And those recessions clean out the excesses in the economy. It allows the economy to rebalance debt and deficits and it gets supply and demand back in balance. And, and again, we have a problem that was created by artificial monetary interventions in 2020, 2021. We've got to let that monetary surplus run through the system. It is reverting now. We probably just saw the peak of inflation in April. So if we would just leave things alone for a few more months, I think we'll start to see those inflationary pressures come down. Supplies are on their way up. And I think the economy will start to stabilize. Lance Roberts, RIA Advisors. And colleges are feeling the bite of inflation just like the rest of us. They're paying more for fuel, utilities, food, and other things. That means higher tuition prices for students. For example, earlier this month, Boston University's president said they're increasing undergrad tuition over 4% for the coming year. That's the largest increase in 14 years since the Great Recession. Other schools are raising it even more to catch up with inflation, which is officially running at over 8%. Rising tuition rates come after two years of historically low tuition increases during the pandemic, as according to the College Board at least. But some experts say upping tuition can only help so much. They'll likely have to also cut some costs. And university students who sued their school for making them take online classes during lockdowns have kind of won their case. 
The school has agreed to a settlement of about $1.5 million. The district quarter is more. Students at a Missouri university will receive money from suing their school for making them take online classes. Lindenwood University agreed to a $1.65 million settlement after a lawsuit that began back in August of 2020. In their lawsuit, the students said that online classes were subpar in practically every aspect, from the lack of facilities, materials, and access to faculty, and that Lindenwood has improperly retained funds for services that have diminished in value or are not being provided at all. Ira Wolf is an adjunct professor at Mullenberg College and the president of Success Performance Solutions. Wolf had to give online classes, which his students weren't comfortable with. They explicitly said that, oh, it was so much better in class. We expected to be in class. I don't like being on screen. Wolf says employers may prefer students who took classes in person over those who took them online. And during the lockdowns, many were online for a long time. For convenience, the virtual aspect was fantastic. But I really do feel like I missed out on a bit of quality and maybe a bit of connection and maybe a bit of opportunities. Jillian Amadio is the founder of Moms for Mental Health, a support network for moms. Amadio spent two out of four years taking classes online at Salisbury University. I don't know how to be in person right now, it feels like. I mean, do I know how to interact with people? Absolutely. And I'm sure, would I thrive in an in-person environment? After a while, I'm sure there'd be an adjustment period. Meanwhile, back in the Lindenwood settlement, the nearly 6,000 students will get around $185 each, and their attorneys will get $550,000. Faye Quarter, NTD News. And Elon Musk says his Twitter deal is on hold. It's just weeks after agreeing to take Twitter private in a $44 billion deal. Of course, his Twitter announcement was made via tweet saying, quote, Twitter deal temporarily on hold, pending details supporting calculation that spam or fake accounts do indeed represent less than 5% of users. Musk had said that one of his priorities would be to remove spam bots from the platform. So what does it mean for the deal? Musk leader tweeted that he's still committed to buying Twitter, but some speculate he could walk away from the deal, although he'd have to pay at least a $1 billion breakup fee. Or else, maybe he wants to negotiate a better selling price. Twitter shares have fallen well below what Musk offered in April. In fact, they fell 10% today alone after Musk tweeted. So what exactly are these spam bots and fake accounts that Musk has vowed to defeat? And Phil Philzo explains. Spam bots and fake accounts, they're everywhere. Uh, there are tons of bots on uh, Twitter. Mark Weinstein is the founder of social media app MeWe. Uh, You know, people that don't have enough things to do on their hands around the world who create fake accounts and uh, cause trouble. Fake accounts are not just handled by humans, but actual robots and computers. Around the world, there are countries uh, that pay, you know, thousands and thousands of bots and trolls. There are so many of them. One of our own team members even encountered one recently. This is the genuine Twitter account of an entrepreneur that our business team reached out to. Now, after our team followed his account, a different account with the exact same name reached out to us. Now, let's come back to Twitter. If you go to the search menu bar and type in his name, at least four different accounts show up. And one of these duplicate accounts even messaged our team, not once, but twice. Elon Musk recently said at an interview that his mission is to remove bot armies on Twitter. Phil Zhou, NTD News. 
And some good news for investors. Wall Street rallied to end the higher today, capping a volatile week of trading, to say the least. Mega-cap tech stocks, which have sold off recently, led the gains today. The Dow rose 466 points, 1.5 percent. S&P 500 gained 98 points, 2 and 4 tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq added 434 points, 3 and 8 tenths of a percent. Uh, despite today's gains, the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq posted their sixth consecutive weekly loss. Could have been worse. And as tech industry layoffs and hiring slowdowns ripple through major corporations, SoftBank, a major international investor, has cut back on startup funding due to major losses. Anthony Sean Marshall has more. The panic of 2022. That's what venture capitalist David Sachs said in a tweet referring to negative investor sentiment in Silicon Valley. SoftBank's Vision Fund recently reported a loss of $20.5 billion for the last fiscal year. The investment management firm is severely cutting its planned startup investments through next March, said Chief Executive Masayoshi Son in a Thursday earnings call. Entrepreneur mindset coach Tatiana Sawyer thinks there won't be less funding for startups, but there is a trend that's changing. VCs are actually a little bit more careful with funding startups, especially tech startups. I've talked to someone just recently who said that they hire specialists to look at the code and basically say, is this startup worth investing in? Is the code good? Is it a good idea? And CEO Harrison Rogers gave a great suggestion for startups looking to join up with venture capitalist firms. A suggestion or recommendation that I would give to new startups is make sure that you have a tech component where you are gathering as much data from your clients, customers, uh, employees as you can, as that data potentially could be more valuable to an exit with a VC as your financials. The cutback of funds from VCs or venture capitalists has caused startups to begin serious cost-cutting and layoffs. Startups as well as investors will just have to be a little more methodical in their tactical approaches going forward. Sean Marshall, NTD News. A Chinese database leak has revealed the names of thousands of Uyghurs detained in China's Xinjiang region. The database has been seen by news outlet AFP. It lists over 10,000 jailed Uyghurs in southwestern Xinjiang. On the list are the prisoners' names, birth dates, ethnicities, sentence lengths, the prisons where they're being held, and what they're charged with. AFP verified the list's authenticity by interviewing Uyghurs outside China who recognize people on the list. The United Nations estimates that China holds one million Uyghurs in Xinjiang camps. Former residents and detainees say that Uyghurs in Xinjiang have been subjected to torture, sterilization and forced labor. And authorities in China yesterday tried to calm residents' worries of a lockdown. But it doesn't seem to be working. Huge lines formed outside of shops in Beijing as locals buy and stock up on food. Anthony Don Ma has the story. Beijing authorities at a press briefing Thursday deny that the city will go under lockdown. But residents aren't fully convinced as they empty store shelves in a panic-buying frenzy. Lines outside grocery stores stretched blocks. Residents' fears stem in part from recent announcements of new rounds of mass virus testing. This weekend, Beijing planned three rounds of testing for millions of residents across 12 districts. Yes, for sure, I'm worried. If they don't find cases in the virus tests anymore, then the pandemic can be controlled. What worries me the most is if cases are found in the virus tests. 
Beijing currently is under partial lockdown. But if a large number of cases are found amid mass testing, authorities could tighten lockdown measures. Partial lockdown measures have wiped out economic activity in some districts. Businesses are closed. Public transit is restricted. Residents are told to work from home. Streets and malls, once bustling with people, are now desolate. Business owners are suffering because they still have to pay rent, even if they don't open their doors. Yesterday, one of my friends, a store manager, started crying as soon as he saw me. He said this month has been very tough. The rent still has to be paid and there still is pressure on the business to perform or you have to face the closure of your business. Businesses are completely suspended without any cash flow. Yet payments for fixed costs such as rent, labor, social security for employees and so on cannot be halted. So for me, this period, as long as COVID-19 curbs last, a company will remain in negative profitability. Beijing's virus restrictions have also impacted residents' access to emergency services. Some hospitals are closed and some require having a negative test result within 24 hours. Don Ma, NTD News. Still to come this evening, stay with us. Mercedes-Benz recalling nearly 300,000 vehicles, warning owners to stop driving until the problem is fixed. Cremation memorials. One business turns the remains of loved ones into keepsakes you can put in jewelry. That and more coming up on NTD Business. back. Mercedes is recalling over 290,000 SUVs due to a potential problem, which would cause the power brakes to fail. The recall covers 2006 through 2012 models of the ML, GL and R-Class SUVs. The company wants owners to stop driving the vehicles until the problem is fixed. Federal regulators say brake boosters can corrode over a long period of time. Drivers would then have to use more force to stop the vehicle, possibly leading to increased stopping distances. Carmaker wants owners to go to a dealer for an inspection to decide whether the brake boosters need to be replaced. Mercedes will tow vehicles to the dealer for free and there's no charge for the work. Company says there haven't been any incidents related to the issue, thankfully. And more and more Americans are turning to cremation instead of burial. Some mourners are now turning their loved ones' ashes into keepsake memorials in the form of diamonds. Anthony's Andrew Thomas is more. One of the firms leading the way, turning loved ones' ashes into diamonds, is the Illinois-based Life Gem. Life Gem uh, costs can range from uh, starting at around two th- uh, $3,000 uh, and go as high as $20,000 plus, depending on the size and color of the diamond that somebody wants. We've been in business for over 20 years. Uh, We were the first company ever to to actually offer this. Cremation surpassed burial as the preferred end-of-life process back in 2016, according to the Cremation Association of North America. 
In fact, roughly 55% of remains in the U.S. during the pandemic have been cremated. LifeGem acquired the first patent for ash-to-diamond conversion, which it established two decades ago. This is one of the early phases of the process. This is actually a, a particle grinder or particle crusher. Uh, we have to take our carbon samples and they have to be crushed to a, a very uniform particle size. Um, so there's a couple of stainless steel ball bearings in there that crash into the material as it's shaking. The next step relies on replicating the high temperatures deep under the Earth's surface. It's a real diamond. Uh, we're creating this diamond, basically duplicating uh, what happens in nature. Uh, heat and pressure very deep beneath the Earth. We can duplicate that in these uh, high-tech diamond presses. From there, the particles spend weeks in a curing process before being placed into the final diamond-making machine. All these high-temperature cores have to be heat-treated to make sure there is absolutely no moisture inside these cores. Each one is labeled with its own unique identification number so that we know exactly what sample that came from. In that environment, pure carbon can be extracted for diamond production and the end result is what LifeGem affirms are real diamonds. Industry leaders say the whole process has a price tag that runs below standard funerals, with pricing starting at around $3,000. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Now for the first time, scientists have used lunar soil collected by NASA's long-ago moonwalkers to grow plants. Results are promising. NASA and others are now envisioning hothouses on the moon. University of Florida researchers had no idea if anything would grow in moon dirt, so they planted a type of cress in lunar soil last year. They used soil that Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and other moonwalkers had collected. All the seeds sprouted, but the plants did end up stunted. Scientists, though, are thrilled. They're planning to repeat the experiment. NASA says the timing for such an experiment was finally right, as the space agency looks to put astronauts back on the moon. And tourists from around the globe are back in Paris again. Many of them had to delay their trips for years due to the pandemic. Indeed, Olin Richards has more. These two siblings are among the many tourists enjoying a long overdue break in Paris. They originally planned the trip as a graduation gift for the sister in 2020. My sister graduated. Um, she actually graduated in 2020. And so the plan was after she graduated to take her on a trip we're from the UK, just pop over and see Paris, see the sites, have some good food. But obviously COVID happened, so it's been postponed two years. So the ceremony was two years late, so our trip is also two years late. But we finally made it to Paris and had a great time. Two years later, they finally made it, with the sister traveling from Britain and the brother coming all the way from Kenya. And walking around the streets, seeing people's faces without masks, yeah. going to restaurants, having like feeling the energy of people around you without the distancing, it's so refreshing. And these two sisters from Ireland also planned their trip two years ago. We were supposed to come here for her 18th birthday, so she's 20, 20 today. So <laughs> exactly two years later we're here. Mm. We originally planned to come the first year that COVID hit, so it was the summer that everything was still locked up. And this couple from Chicago came to Paris to celebrate their engagement. I think most people were probably waiting for something like this, at least Westerners. So, oh, I mean, this was a top pick for us and we couldn't be you know, more happy to be here. It's beautiful and it's amazing to see everyone out here, right? So it's, it's the most back to normal that we have seen since. The Paris Tourist Office is forecasting that foreign visits will increase more than fivefold in May to July compared to the same period last year. 
and that's mainly thanks to tourists from Spain, Germany, Britain and Italy. First of all, because a lot of uh, um, countries have totally changed the COVID uh, travel policies, so it was really good for us. But the only part of the world that we did not see really good comeback was from Asia. So for the moment, what kind of nationality we see in our country, I mean, in the city of Paris, it's most U.S., uh, still Europe really strong, and people from South America. According to marketing consulting company MKG Consulting, hotel owners saw a sharp rise in bookings this spring. Overall activities were getting close to pre-pandemic levels in April and even topping 2019 figures over Easter. Great to see. As the latest in the NTD business team and myself, Paul Graney, you can still catch NTD Evening News with Stephanie Cox. Follow me on Twitter, too, if you're there. NTD Business, it's all for today. Thank you for watching. We'll see you Monday.